Oh, hello there, friends. George and Steve are back from their summer. Um, I've we've we've kind of done that thing, you know, when a podcast you love just goes away for a couple of weeks, and you think, "Where has it been?" I'm so annoyed. My it's not updating in my feed. Is there anything wrong? No, there's nothing wrong. Uh, you know, good, good riddance, right? <laughs> it's summer. We've both been busy, boys. Um, some busier than others, as oh. we'll see. But I, I've been gallivanting across the USA. For those who have been listening, will probably know. Uh, I've been not not to every state, only a few states. But I've been very much from west coast to east coast. Uh, I've been on tour with my brother Matthew Hussey, uh, dating coach, person, man. And uh, we've been doing our big Matthew Hussey tour. We started in LA. We went to Texas and all the way ended up in Chicago, from which I've just got back. So, George, this is our first conversation in a while. Do you have you missed me? Mm. Yes, yes, it's been all right, Steve. I've been okay. Let's put it that way. What's been going on? What's been going on in sunny Copenhagen? It's been raining a lot. Um, I've not gone out much. Um, yeah, not. It's not been as whistle stop as as it has your end. Let's put it that way. Well, on that note, <laughs> <laughs> got loads loads to the table. Got loads to talk about though. Um, well, you, Steve, you sort of blast you sort of blasted through where you've been. I was hoping that was going to be the meat of our conversation. So maybe you could, uh, you know, take things a step back and talk us through it. Let's reel it back and talk about the tour. Um, because I feel like it, you know, I've been saying it on the podcast, but I haven't really explained it. Well, you, you like this sort of grizzly roadie. <laughs> I've got a big beard right now, and I do feel a little bit, you know, I've just I've just been showing up in places, eating, going to bed. Wearing bed. an Iron Maiden t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tattooed forearms. Hanging around the back of the theatres. <laughs> uh, yeah, so let me explain. My, my brother... I always assume people who listen to this podcast follow what my brother does because I assume a lot of them come from that. And that, that's probably true. But, you know, my brother is uh, a very popular speaker, goes around doing uh, talking about dating, uh, specifically to women, um, talking about attraction, talking about relationships, talking about why relationships are difficult these days and how to solve some of the common problems. And, you know, we, we kind of realized we'd been in our cave for quite a while in the company and it was time to, it was time to get our show horse back out there. Was uh, this tour in sort of service of something or was it the, um, the events were the things in themselves? Yeah, the events were the thing in themselves. It was, um, yeah, it was, it was just a way to be able to actually go and, you know, get out there more, uh, interact with fans and actually, you know, it's kind of, we, we get a lot of material when we, when Matt goes on stage and we, we kind of write new stuff or almost a bit like a writing a new set where we, we don't just go and say the same things we've done in a talk before. Cause, uh, you know, I think quite rightly, we have the philosophy that if people are paying to come and see, see you, you kind of want the people who had already seen you to feel that it was worth their while yeah um we yeah, always have a, lots of your material then is like kind of question and answer sort of setup so it's new every time uh we have q a like at the end um but we actually have this time we actually had a very almost like wrote a set 
you know, a set piece and we framed it around like what are the big love myths of today okay. that people labour under. And that was kind of the the way we structured it and, and you know, did some of the material people will know from there, but kind of some new stuff as well and talked about new ideas. So, so you know, we try, we tried to make it fresh and, and luckily the feedback we got from people was that it felt that way. But, um, yeah, I was kind of there as a... You know, we like to we like to take clips from the tour and put them on social media because you know that's our company has grown massively since we've had many viral videos from Matt on stage on social media. Um, so yeah, we we kind of use it as that as well as a way to kind of get new content on film and be able to put it out to millions of people uh, if we're lucky. So uh, so yeah, I I sort of trotted along. I was asked very late in the game to come along and. Were you, were you speaking? on the talks i know you do some talks in london and i know you speak when you guys do your retreat were you involved in this one in that capacity at all i got it was weird because it wasn't ever pre prior agreed <laughs> it, you know my brother has this way of just sort of on the fly doing things like i do a talk on our retreats now and that's become a regular thing but about the first time that happened, it was literally Matt spoke to me about it the night before and was like, you know, you, you know you've done some good, you were good on stage that one time. Do you want to like do a talk tomorrow for like an hour? To 500 people. Yeah. And it's that sort of thing. And I, I do remember the first time I spoke at our retreat to 200 women or whatever it was, it was, uh, it was very much, it was very nerve wracking. And it's just, you know, another, it's just another Saturday night for you, that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Just usually, I speak to them individually. <laughs> um, Apologize you know, one by one. Yeah. Our friend, uh, our, my coworker Jameson, who works with us in the company, um, you know, he always says that he's never, he's always humble about how his brain can react in certain high pressure situations, and and speaking on stage definitely. Like I've, I'm, I'm really proud of how far I've come on it. But I do remember when I first spoke on the retreats, I was almost just sort of like, yeah, I've done public speaking before. This will be, you know, I, I get, I know how to put talk together. But when you're just thrust into a brand new scenario like that, and you're suddenly now talking about relationships in front of 200 women, it's a scenario you're not used to. Suddenly these like old nerves flooded back. And I was like, oh, I've really got to, I've got to get good at this in a way that is unique to this kind of speaking. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like going and doing a presentation for, I don't know, even if you did it at university or something on a formal subject you've studied for two years, it's just very different. So I'm going to now speak on stage and hopefully in a way that's passionate and is maybe inspiring. And I want to kind of impart these kind of ideas to them it's it's all like its own like skill you have to learn like a new martial art or something so it's very humbling but but doing yeah back to the tour we um yeah matt pulled me up for a few q and a's um and uh i think the first Where time are you when the talk's going on are you just sort of scurrying around or yeah it's funny because i'm sort of my role is quite interesting in the company because i've worked for matt you know i've worked with him uh, as well as other things I do, but I've kind of worked with him for many years. And so there are people who are very aware of me. And then, of course, there are people who have followed us for a couple of months. And so they, they don't this know. Yeah, they don't know that Matt's brother works for the company and right. stuff with him. So It just looks that, like disgusting nepotism. 
<laughs> yeah, it's like my brother's coming on stage. Uh, so sometimes I have to sort of intro myself when I get on stage and right. say, "Look, guys, I co-wrote this best-selling book with Matt. I've been doing this a long time." But but sometimes he gives me a very sweet introduction. But he's thinking of a million things, so sometimes he sort of forgets he has to give me a bit of like credibility. Sure. Um, but yeah, it was it was the first time was this the we did one in LA. And I was just sort of around the back. And and many people, I mean, yeah, there are many people who do sort of recognize me and say they love this podcast, George. Which, yeah, it happened. I mean, I, I felt like I was sort of sucking in the the residual the praise for both of us. Um, but I was I was inhaling, I was getting high on it, George. There were people, you know, just people from all over the country who were saying they didn't. They said, "Oh, I like your articles," but some of them first said, "George, I love the podcast." Anyone? Um, anyone mentioned me? Uh, they they mentioned I love the Steve and George podcast. Uh, less good, but <laughs> that l- luckily they didn't go. Oh, I love that George much more. Than <laughs> um, but so, I think some people have said that online, so that's fine. Um, they like your book recommendations more than mine sometimes. Oof. Um, but yeah, we, uh, the first time Matt brought me up was on, uh, in Houston. That was sort of our second date in, uh, in the U S and, uh, yeah, just pulled me up very, very suddenly without me knowing at all. I was like, I actually want to bring my brother on stage for some of these. Um, yeah. So, uh, so that's that- a super different skill as well, right? Being able to field a Q and a is very different to, doing this talk at your retreats that you've rehearsed and kind of whittled down to being something really drilled, being able to think on your feet for a Q&A, I guess, is a completely different skill. Yeah, very much so. When you listen to people do it on stage or on podcasts, you, you very much take for granted how hard it is to think on your feet and respond to something. And it's definitely, to be honest, doing this with you and having now gone through, I used to get very nervous when the Q and A started at events because I would suddenly think, well, what if something comes up I can't handle? And, uh, you know, I remember a friend of mine, Mike, who I worked with, it, it's, it shows how much it's a kind of a mental thing because first of all, you, you're not, you know, you're not obliged to have this perfect answer for absolutely anything anyone could throw at you. And that's sort of just in your head that you need that you, you can, you know, people have asked me things before and I'll, I can just say, you know, I don't have personal experience for that, but I'll speak to, this is what I've learned from talking to other people about this, or this is something I've read. Yeah. Or sometimes yeah. I do say, well, I only have my personal experience and I'll share that with you. And, you know, there's, it's just kind of not being afraid to sort of bob and weave with the punches really. And sort of yeah. just take it in. Yeah. The direction. problem when you see a, uh... I guess maybe an obvious example would be, say, a politician and they're being questioned about something they've clearly got a party line they have to follow and they have to stick to the right. script. It, it, it smacks of dishonest, like, you know, or lack of earnestness. Whereas, yeah, if you can be candid and say, I don't have that information, but here's what I, I think might be a good line to follow, I suppose that, yeah, people are going to respect that a lot more, right? Yeah, and, um, you know, sorry, so, yeah, my friend Mike sort of said, like, oh, you... Because he he remembered I I always went up with a bunch of notes and things and was very like meticulous of like oh have I got everything I need to say and he said to me he was like mate you know you know all of this like you've been doing this a long time you've been writing about it you you know what you're talking about 
you don't need to feel so beholden to like do you have enough material or stuff mm-hmm. to say and I, and I think that once I sort of let that go a bit and realized it was like I relaxed and realized oh I do have I do have plenty of thoughts and things to say on this I don't need to sort of consult my notes every time there's a a question or something and uh yeah it was it was just very useful to realize it was largely a mental thing but but yeah like just even saying you you know admitting your own sort of humility on a topic and giving what you can it's uh yeah it's it's as good as answering questions so yeah that but that's great like the more i've done that you know it's something we talked about before is the more you can expose yourself you know, exposure therapy on those things. Like public speaking, I think, is one of these life skills that is so invaluable the more you cultivate it and the more you cultivate the ability to speak without being nervous. It's such a... It's it's very... It's much more difficult than people think and it's much more valuable than a lot of people think as well. Do you agree with that? I mean, yeah, I think it's obviously a great skill to have. I think... I think it probably would be quite easy to get through a life where you don't have to speak to huge swathes of people publicly, right? I suppose it is a fairly circumstantial and or one or two big life events kind of thing that many people might just not be in a position to talk to a crowd, but just being able to talk freely in stressful positions, job interviews or dates or whatever it could be. Of course, yes, it's an amazing skill to have. You can talk kind of yeah, freely and earnestly and confidently, then you're going to come across so, so much, you know, better represented in all of those categories. And they're all kind of categories that people really respect and respond to, I think. Yeah. I I just think there are points in, in most people's, if you're going to be at a certain level of success, I do think you're going to be called upon to have to speak off the cuff or to say something or to communicate your ideas I do, I feel like instinctively it's just this, it's this meta skill that you're, you're going to have to like, yeah, you're going to be called upon to do at some point. I, I, I know anyone's had to do a presentation or pitch or whatever it is at their work. And uh, yeah, I, I would just tell anyone to take any chances they can at having to do that. Like I, I find being on camera is a deeply initially uncomfortable experience and, and again a whole different yeah. martial art to like being on stage and, and you keep I remember, mentioning martial arts Dave what was the last martial art you did <laughs> your second you know, time has come up today and I just, you know, when I'm, I'm when I'm learning my all my Brazilian jiu-jitsu or uh, yeah whether it's kung fu whether it's karate whether it's jiu-jitsu you know how it is um, yeah yeah yeah, I'm. I'm not. I'm not a skilled martial artist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking highly theoretical here. Um, yeah, uh, it's yeah. Just being on camera. I remember first time cameras were stuck on me, and I was doing a YouTube video. I realised like, oh god, this is complete. Like, where are these nerves coming from? What? There's just a camera here, and you suddenly like, realise you don't have any idea what to do with your hands. Right? It's not something you normally think about yeah where to look and all that stuff so so yeah this was um but this this trip actually not to toot my own horn george but i i think i was knocking them out of the park (laughs) i uh i was actually very you know that that moment in life where you're 
surprisingly pleased with how much you've come along at something and yeah just being able to be to go up on stage and actually be able to respond to people suddenly off the cuff and be able to be funny or be able to give answers that people resonated with it was a very gratifying thing of thinking like oh I can do this now like I understand this and uh you can always like you can still screw up like you can still have these moments where you think you know you it, it suddenly you get in your head and you think oh I thought I knew this and you drop the ball but but by and large I was quite happy about it and uh yeah it was just meeting so many people afterwards um it was it was really that tour experience of going you know kind of loading up the car arriving at a hotel and then like within like a few hours you're suddenly at this big show where people have come out to you know see what you do was it quite a kind of disjointed or like an intense tour in that it was one night in one city and then the next night you were somewhere else or did you have a bit of time to kind of settle into the different there were like there was like a mixed bag like the texas ones were super fast and we we were just like for you know getting into town getting sleep and then prepping the next morning and the event was the next afternoon and it was um you know and then we'd like furiously google like the best barbecue in texas to go and eat afterwards because we wanted to get some kind of flavor of where we were and go and see something so it was kind of uh yeah, and and then New York we got a bit longer, um, but Texas we did Houston and then literally Dallas the next day. Um, yeah, so that was very fast, and uh, but it was great. It was your, uh, um, I suppose your kind of connection with the US is the two coasts, really, right? Like your brother lives in LA, you spend time in New York. Um, did did this trip give you? I don't know, do you feel like you, I know you've been to other parts of the US, but do you feel like you kind of got to grips with a bit more of the US and did people and the kind of questions that were asked and things, did they vary city by city in a kind of notable way or how, how, yeah, how was your sort of sense of the country as a whole from this experience? Yeah, it's, well, you know, obviously in relative terms, we sort of scratched the surface, but, um, and, uh, you know, the, the most I sort of felt I've, I've got to see America is, is, uh, I did a big trip once across on the big Amtrak across from like Illinois to Wisconsin to Montana and, you know, Arizona and stuff. And, and so that felt more like, oh, I'm seeing kind of rural America and stuff. Yeah. But this was, this was, I guess, more seeing the, you know, I, I'm someone who likes, uh, as much as like generalizations are lazy and stuff, I do like to try and note patterns between like what's slightly different about a place when I go to it or what's slightly different about this city. And, you know, certain things do play out as, you know, some of the cliches you've been told, but like, you know, people in the South are very friendly and they're very, um, yeah, they were very like warm, inquisitive, like a bit more, you know, new, uh, LA was a bit more rowdy in a way, uh, okay. the LA crowd. Um, although I'd kind of think that more of New York, but yeah, the New York and LA crowds were definitely a bit more sort of, um, a bit feistier. Um, right. okay. yeah, a bit more like, I don't know, saying stuff back in the middle of the, in the middle of the talk or, you know, more whooping and cheering more yeah. like that sort of thing. And, uh, and maybe the South was a bit more polite. Um, yeah, but it's uh, it's interesting. Like, I'd never been to Texas before, and 
the Texas hospitality is very real. Like when you show up anywhere, like LA can be a little, little frosty in reception. Some places, like some places you get that sort of, you can get that sort of California put on sort of, you know, positive attitude, but some places as well, you can get a very sort of, there's also a cynicism to it as well. And, uh, Texas doesn't really seem to possess that much. Like most people are very willing to engage or like, you know, service in places or they'll chat to you, that sort of thing. Um, it's very nice. But, uh, yeah. And, uh, went to Toronto, went to Canada for the first time. Was that your first time in Canada or just Toronto? First time in the Canadian, in the Canadian border. Lovely. Um, have you been there? Uh, not to Toronto. I've been to Vancouver. All right. Um, yeah, and you know, again, when you're going to big city to big city, it can it is still very much like I'm in another big city. Um, but yeah, Canadians, what are Canadians like? I think I think I've yeah, Canadians. I don't know. I just, I don't have like a firm sense of them being one thing. You know, everyone says like they're oh, Canadians are really really friendly. Canadians are very nice people in my experience uh, but i don't have that association of them being that sort of one characteristic um and you know you might get sort of stereotypes like the south in america is polite and new yorkers are a bit harder or tougher but i don't have a specific you know singular idea of canadians uh, but one thing i did notice is people in toronto are very happy in general that was my sort of casual observation people in toronto seem very happy to be there and very positive champions of the city of Toronto itself, which was refreshing. Uh, it's nice to be in a big city where people seem so happy with the place and seem to enjoy it a lot. Um, yeah, but do you have a specific vision of Canadians as being one thing or something people say about them? Um, politeness is, or a, a polit- like the stereotype that I suppose we would hold or from the Canadians I've met is like they're just always keen to apologise more than British people. It's like their trump card is they'll say sorry more than you will. But, but isn't uh, that our stereotype that we say sorry all the time? Yeah, it is. But then I think it exists as a stereotype for Canadians that they're even more apologetic kind of thing. But um, it's, <laughs> it's a pretty big country, right? So it's kind of hard to lump everyone under one character trait i would say um, yeah i know i'm i'm always like trying to get the very quick heuristic on a place where i'm trying to be like oh people are like x here and it's yeah. like it's like very difficult and yeah i mean obviously it's it's pretty hard to characterize an entire country with it. Yeah. i don't know i feel like i feel like british people might have more more homogenous personality than say a country as big as the u.s I, yeah i I'm sure we probably do in the UK, um, just because just because it is kind of restrained to within about a 300 mile radius, right? Whereas yeah, Canada's absolutely massive. Um, yeah. But yeah, let's uh, let's move away from pigeon pigeonholing people based on just sort of generic <laughs> like, away from trying to stereotype. No. <laughs> um, no, yeah, but the touring experience is very like I've never done it in that way where we've just been hopping from place to place, and it it does have some of that. You know, we weren't like in a van on the road or anything like that. We were going plane to plane, which is kind of in some ways more disorienting because yeah. you're just you're just suddenly within two hours within a completely different place. And yeah. 
you know, like three hours. Okay, now we're in New York from Dallas, and it, your kind of brain gets a bit scrambled. And mm. I, it, I, I guess in a van or something, maybe you have more a sense of the distance you're crossing and the time yeah. passing. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so the plane thing is very much like, but it's nice showing up in a place and almost feeling like there's a there's a purpose and a welcome for you at this event. Like you're going to go, and suddenly everyone's going to be like really glad you showed up, and there's right. a there's a kind of thing you get out of it, like a gratification you don't get out of, you know, you write an article, post it online and get X hundred or thousand shares and it's great. Or you do a YouTube video and it, it goes viral and there's something exciting about that. But just the fact that you show up and real people have come and they want to talk about their dating lives with you. And they say, Oh, I've read your stuff and like, listen to your podcast. You're like, this is amazing. I've shown up in, toronto and someone saying they listen to the steve and george podcast yeah, i mean that's, that's a nice thing that's the world we're living in george crazy, you know when uh, you know when oscar wilde went and did that tour of the u.s and was just you speaking like that, speaking to the local people <laughs> <laughs> it's very much sort of pilgrimage to go and go and communicate across the pond <laughs> um didn't end yeah. particularly well for him did it but hopefully Hopefully things go a bit better for us. Well, the US part went well for him. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose um, so. I, the Americans loved Oscar Wilde. Um, yeah, but I um, I did say to Jameson, actually, I was like, what if you just did this? Like, my brain was scrambled by the end of this as a few weeks, but I thought, what if you just did this for like a year? Would you lose all sense of place and time? Say you weren't just even the US, you were just showing up in like... I guess some pop singers do this, but yeah, I, you I'm just, sure that's where a lot of that kind of like out of touch cele- like celebrity comes from, right? If your life is just permanently being uprooted and you're kind of having this slightly false veneer of, oh, people are just here for the best of you. It's, it is all a bit, um, yeah, it's, it's not really real, is it? Yeah, well, that's the thing. We almost get to take a nice little bite because we're sort of this medium-sized thing where sort of Matt's big online and so we can kind of get a crowd in a room and do a thing, but we're not showing up and there's a stadium of people in Sao Paulo or something. Not yet. Like a, 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 <laughs> there's like, it's not like, oh, we're showing up, there's a full-on stadium in a country I've never been to, but it's it's that, like, what if you just... And I don't even mean in the sort of it goes to your head way. I mean more it's disorienting in like an existential like thing of showing up in just city after city or place after place. And I was saying to Jameson, like, you know, if what if you if you just did this for a year and we're just showing up in South America and Bangkok and Asia and just going around, like how you would really get a kind of a real disconnected sort of malaise, like the world would almost feel like not real like it would just be like i'm just showing up in a place and everyone's lives are going on and there must be something to that where if you travel a lot you must get a kind of a kind of depression like an induced from not really having any roots definitely definitely like with you guys going around the u.s at least everyone spoke the same language everywhere you went or you know there was some sort of consistent through line but if you're just popping up in places where really everyone's lives are kind of similar in the sort of fairly sort of first world milieu that you'd move in if you're doing that kind of thing right but it'd be a different language and just like a slightly different aesthetic and it would all just it kind of feel really similar but really displacing at the same time um 
yeah, you just sort of really lose track of. Well, I, I think you've told me your brother said this about living in LA, just with the seasons, not you know, not having that variety of the seasons starts to become a bit weird. And like just those sorts of things where the the norm is just changed enough from what you're used to, it can really throw you off. Yeah, I have this weird relationship with travel in general where I really love it and yearn for it. As soon as I'm grounded for too long, say at home, I yearn for some kind of adventure. And yet I know when I'm on it, this is not a state of affairs. You know, this I need I need like some grounding after a while. And I, I get I there must be some people who are built for a much more a very nomadic existence. Whereas I feel like I'm kind of have an adventurous mindset where I, I just like having new adventures all the time and seeing new things is very thrilling and that sort of thing. But I, I do wonder if you have a nomadic existence, you must be built a different way. Mm. Somewhat. Yeah. What you mean? Like physiologically, like you're good at dealing with time zone changes and things, or you just need need consistent things in your life. Yeah, I mean, even just mentally, like, do you know, does is there a universal human need for a kind of consistency, or or are some people just really different in that they can just they can just sort of hop around and live place to place to place? The uh, caravan community, Steve. Well, yes, yeah. the traveling community. Could you how how much do you think you could do? What traveling? Yeah, um, if you were just could you live a life where you live a few months here, a few months there, kept sort of uprooting, or do you think you would feel there's a kind of you're not you're not building anything real if you did that? Um, I think month month blocks is is certainly quite manageable. I've done the like I've been interrailing. I went with my brother, and we were sort of never in one place for in about three days. We went to something like thirteen countries in you know. 18 days or something like that that was quite disorienting and you do get fatigue like oh it's you know another beautiful mid-europe city with sort of grand buildings and museums like after a while it just kind of blends into it, each other so if we kept doing that for another two or three weeks i'd sort of lose all impetus for it but what i'm doing now where i'm living in copenhagen now it's a little bit of a sort of taste of that because it's just, you've been plonked in this new place and you kind of, you know, it's all new and there's the novelty of doing different things, but there's also that I don't really have the consistency of a group of friends or because of the nature of the job I do where I work from my laptop, usually from home or by myself in a library or a coffee shop. I don't have like a community. And if we then moved somewhere else, it would be exactly the same thing again. So I, yeah, I, th- I think I'm, I think you just start to miss the people that are important to you, right? And technology like the technology we're using now certainly makes it a bit easier. But if you're someone who's kind of created a kind of oh, home, but like roots in a certain place, being up, choosing to uproot yourself and be somewhere else does after a while start to mean that you are losing something you've you've constructed and moving from place to place maybe adds a bit of novelty. But after a while, it, it just does become yeah, I kind of miss maybe the people I need around me, around me as much as anything else. I think if, if you could like move your kind of 20 mates with you everywhere you went, I don't think I'd get the same fatigue. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like even just doing it, like obviously we didn't do any serious, like 
long travel, but even just doing something with four people who you know and are good friends with just kind of gives you a whole different feeling. Yeah. I'm taking, you know, I've got groundedness with this continuity where we're doing it together and seeing. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's why that that Sebastian Junger book Tribes uh, talks about that is is the uh, you know the need or why it, why it's really important people have some sense of constant community. Mm. Um, but that's a podcast for another day, George. Uh, <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> we're keeping it light, light and summary. Um, On the uh, uh, slightly sort of just light note, Steve, I'm uh, I'm sat at the sat at the table and I'm just looking out out of the window across the street and I can in a kind of Jimmy Stewart sort of way peer into the windows of of other people's apartments and the apartment opposite me I can always see what they're watching on TV and they've been watching Friends and that kind of makes me the ugly naked guy I mean I'm getting a pic- I'm getting a very vivid picture of your son right now I'm also I'm also completely nude Steve <laughs> Uh, what, watching I'm not, I'm, I'm, watching I'm not nude. I'm watching not nude. friends through a neighbour's window. It's a bit tragic, isn't it? Um, and you're pro- presumably watching Seinfeld at the same time. Uh, well, I'm talking to you at the moment, but yeah, we could sort of yeah get back yeah. to the early or mid nineties with them. It's just yeah, I just sort of felt looking up there. I thought, oh, this makes me the sort of awful person across the street who they're always mocking. <laughs> Uh, I mean, this is and this is picture of the nostalgia-ridden world we're in now, where you know modern-day Copenhagen, they're watching Friends, and you've been watching reruns of Seinfeld. I mean, if there's any more proof of my we're in peak nostalgia porn time, it's that. Well, yeah, I mean, every year that goes on, there will be more nostalgia, right? Well, it's like every year we'll have more nostalgia. Yeah, but not people feeling it. So you know, nostalgia is the feeling. There'll be more stuff in the past, but so there'll be more sentiments for people to feel about previous things. So I would, I would put it that every year that goes on, there will be room for more nostalgia. Also, the population's increasing. Yeah, there's room for more, but it's not. You know, nostalgia is the the strength of the sentiment. And I think right now people feel a very strong level of nostalgia that they didn't feel. 15 years ago. But also didn't have the means to feel it in the same way, right? Like with cyclical fashion and stuff, it's usually about a 20-year sort of reach for like styles and things. And that really fits with things like Friends being streamed. But in 10 years' time, people will just be streaming, I don't know, whatever people watched 10 years ago. Well, um, well I think the, the internet definitely contributed. I think the internet has become a weird saving a, a grounds for just saving all this sort of cultural artifacts that maybe wouldn't have been so accessible so yeah i, I was re- watching a video about i know we're changing subjects a bit but you know um this is the kind of podcast this is today we can't just perennially bang on about your tour can we <laughs> <laughs> no, not. um yeah, I was watching this video today about what, what's become the strange place that Simpsons has in culture right now. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, most people agree the Simpsons has become awful. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, what, what it is now, I, I dislike it so much that it has, it has sort of tainted my view of the previous shows. And it's not fair, but I, I do have this... It's tainted my view of this, the Simpsons as a whole. But it I know also it became awful about. It's now. It's coming up to about twenty-three years ago that it took a turn for the worse. 
Yeah, long, long time, right? People say like season nine, which would have been... <laughs> yeah, it's like 96 or seven. When we were teenagers or something, but it was... um, Yeah, it's... Uh, it's I think it, pre- yeah, it predates our sort of teenage years, really. Maybe it does. I think the first live episode, you know, like a new episode I saw as it came out was the episode it's very boring for people is where Maud Flanders spoiler alert was killed oh right yeah so that's like season 10 or 11 yeah but I remember as a kid like who shot Mr Burns when that was a big like I remember seeing what as that came out live yeah because I remember like the magazine there was some magazine cover with it on it was like a big thing at the time right maybe I just didn't have like Sky TV to have been able to watch it but um yeah but so so yeah there's all this like now there's this obsessive culture of memeing the simpsons and doing old weird reappropriations with old episodes and stuff and it's almost like people are so nostalgic for what it was and have this strong feeling like a lot of us grew up with it as it was like probably my most beloved thing as a kid like same yeah uh, yeah so it, it now people are doing all these strange sort of nostalgic almost melancholy appropriation, sometimes just messing with it. But have you heard of Simpsons Waves, George? Simpsons Wave, yeah, I was just going to say it. Yeah, I've listened, I've listened to or watched quite a lot of them. I think they're great. The, way, the best way to describe them is like they're these sort of looped animations from The Simpsons, but almost sometimes scrambled or done in a very, like clips thrown together to make a very melancholic... Um, well, there's a kind of music right called like Vaporwave or Chill Wave, so it's just yeah. that, but over Simpsons videos rather than just generic VHS wistfulness. Yeah, and it's like almost these these poignant, like trying to capture a certain emotion, like Crisis is one of the famous ones on YouTube. It's just yeah. Crisis and it's Homer sort of in a sort of de- depression and onward. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, it's like, wow, people have been really creative and strange with their, you know, their feelings towards this. But um, Or like the endless steamed hams, uh, yeah. which, you know, is fantastic, some of them. But it's just, it's a, almost a whole new level of, people making art out of old art. It's very strange and interesting. Like an old disposable sitcom, people are sort of making this weird sort of abstract art out of it. As long as they don't make Simpsons Wave videos out of episodes after season eight or nine, then I'm all for it. I, yeah, (laughs) that's true. I I have since been given a lot. My friend, our friend Adam sends me a lot of old Simpsons jokes and I have been, you know, old clips. And I have been like, oh, actually, they were they were excellent. I, but it's sort of... It, it's it's, it's the best. To, it's taken me a while to forgive from the new ones. Yeah, I've just not engaged with the new ones. So I just sort of feel like, oh, that was a great show from the sort of early to mid-90s that it stopped. I just don't really acknowledge the fact that it's been running for another 20 years, I suppose. I'm just yeah, ignorant of them. This is going to sound slightly pretentious, George, but... I see that sort of stuff, like that's Vaporwave or like that, uh, sorry, the Simpsons Wave, things like that online. I see them as like the current progression of modern, postmodern art. Like I think they're better than what is probably in galleries right now passing for postmodern art. Like they... Yeah, yeah, probably, yeah. I mean, because they're also sort of an interactive beast that people can sort of replicate and be part of right whereas like gallery art is often it's it's kind of an excluding and exclusive thing 
so yeah a lot of the sort of stuff that happens on the internet is is kind of uh community based as well yeah and it and it's kind of that thing of postmodernism of actually you know taking something that exists deconstructing it making something new out of it commenting on it in a in a sort of meta way and i'm like that's probably the continuation of postmodern art in it just it's just done in a very unusual medium that is not familiar to like a gallery or something but uh you know like that too many cooks video Mm, too many cooks is like a a viral video that was like a the whole thing is just a long extended parody of old sitcom intros where they'd intro like 10 characters waving over music right and it descends into becoming more and more surreal and almost like a david lynch horror piece and it's sort of yeah it sort of melts into this sort of nightmare but it's uh it's like got a postmodern yeah it's just like a deconstruction of a certain style and i'm like that's and that's probably like I'm not, I'm not going that's art, but well, it, it is a kind of art, and I think like that's that's probably yeah, that's probably where the interesting stuff is now. But nice, you know that's that's Steve's uh, hot takes on modern art. Well, Steve, if we're going to be talking about nostalgia, take, take that, John Berger. <laughs> he's dead, so okay, he's a good he's a good art critic, but. Yeah, uh, and, and they're not bad novelists, Steve. I'm going to stick my neck out there and say that as well. He won the Booker Prize. Is that so. the same person? Yeah. Oh wow, very eclectic fellow. Yeah, I read I read that earlier earlier this year. G, and not and not because of the letter, Steve. Not because it's the first letter of my name. <laughs> the reason I read it. Um, it's it's enjoyable and actually, funnily enough, reminded me of the novel C by Tom McCarthy, which is a, a very um, sort of niche uh, niche acronym reference for for all you big you know literary fans out there um i preferred c by tom mccarthy to g by john berger if anyone's keeping score but um both both very enjoyable hot take <laughs> god that that was niche wasn't it um yeah well, well we'll move on steve the point i was trying to sort of lead us towards was oh all that nostalgia talk Oh, what about the old nostalgic Quentin Tarantino film that, that's just come out? Oh, oh, proving my point here. Um, yeah, well, the, the brand new Quentin Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, probably a probably quite a successful version of nostalgia porn, in a way. Uh, you mean like gate receipts-wise? I mean in terms of successful as a piece of art and oh, like well sorry you mean well made you don't mean box office success no, no yeah both i guess yeah, yeah um what did you what did you think of quentin tarantino's new film george uh well my my problem steve is that i really don't like going to the cinema because Brilliant. I don't, you know i just i don't like being around a whole it, film that celebrates cinema steve and- dare i say it, i don't like being in the cinema with other people um because they're all noisy and I'm quite deaf. And we went to this really like old, beautiful cinema in the centre of Copenhagen. And it's just not fit for purpose, Steve, I'm going to be honest. We were sat quite near the back and I was literally sat on the edge of my seat, <laughs> cupping my hands around my ears and leaning forward to try and hear it better than I could. Um, Why? Because I'm, I'm pretty deaf and it was just, I think, I'm sure the film was mixed properly. It's just that the cinema screen didn't have like, great sound system and it was just like not a great space for it because it was like this old possibly like an old theater or something but 
so you'd kind of have like really loud music, but then Leo DiCaprio in this sort of drawl where I could barely hear what he was saying. So my back was up from when the film started because I was just sort of <laughs> straining every single to hear what was going on. And then people next to me are sort of rustling their sort of bag of licorice or whatever it is Danish people eat when they're in the cinema. But um, that didn't put me in the best mood. But um, I really enjoyed it while I was watching it. Like I had a really good time watching it. But um, and I'm sure we're not going to sort of divulge spoilers because it hasn't been out very long. But um, I don't think it was very profound, and I think it, I think it was, um, yeah, not not particularly deep. I think maybe thought it was deeper than it was, and maybe had a few kind of. It, it relied a little bit too much on a kind of external awareness of things, which in my mind made me feel like the film fell fell slightly short in what it was trying to achieve because it didn't get the impact that I think it was looking for within what it did in the film. It got that impact based on what you bring to the film with your own baggage. And I don't know right. if it's okay in or not. Of, in terms of, because it's not a spoiler to say the film has some basis in historical yeah. uh, historical events in the 60s, but you mean, yeah. do, you, do you think it requires prior knowledge to sort of appreciate or enjoy fully how it plays out? Yeah, I do. I, I think it does require that. I imagine probably the majority of people seeing it have, you know, enough of that prior knowledge to get that. But I, I then just think it's it's not particularly profound to kind of do a bit of a. It felt like a bit of a bait and switch. Maybe the end, the ending, um, and just yeah. I, d- I don't think it had maybe the depth that in Heinz that after I left the cinema. It, I kind of I enjoyed it all the way up to when the credits rolled and sort of sat there and kind of absorbed it. And then as I walked away, I thought more and more. I didn't like that scene. I it, I didn't know how I felt about it for quite a long time. And I think processing that probably was because of you now that felt like maybe a bit of a trick or a cheat or um, a bit of a cheap cheap shot is a hard way to put it. But I just think that the yeah the internal construction of what the film led you towards sort of like why did all these earlier scenes happen if that's the ending if you didn't know the real historical narrative then that would just you know you've had to sit through a load of stuff that's just entirely irrelevant um within the within the running time of the film if that makes sense yeah it does make sense having seen it um yeah i think um the ending's definitely divisive and because most of it really doesn't matter about the the real history of anything at all it's just a the divisiveness of the ending though is from what i've read seems to be because of like the level of violence it uses right that's the thing that most yeah yeah i guess some people have issues of the narrative how it plays out but i think like yeah it's strange because that's almost just the end and the rest of it is just a period piece that doesn't need in some way, you know, the rest of it is just a period piece. But the question is, I guess, whether the period piece would work if it didn't have the ending where, you know, it all culminates. Yeah, but there's there's plenty of foreshadowing earlier in the film that you get as payoff in that ending. Um, so it obviously is like ticking, yeah, yeah, ticking sure. towards that for sure, right? But I just, um, yeah, that, I think afterwards as well, I, I can't really dwell on how much he, he just you know and he always has he just cast his mates and now he casts his mates kids and it just it like as the credits were rolling he sort of he has the credits for the actors and then there was a separate page on the credits where he called it like the gang 
I think. And it was just like the actors that are always in all of his films, like Michael Masden, Tim Roth, who didn't make the final cut. And yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's such like a backslapping, which of course he's entitled to do, but I just found it a bit like jarring. And I felt that really all of the scenes that had his old mates on were a bit naff. Um, I, di- I didn't find the cameos intrusive in this one. It didn't feel like it was some telegraphed. The one, I, the one I really struck well. I just didn't think it was enjoyable. Was the Kurt Russell one? I thought that was just that was just rubbish. Oh, um, yeah, that was he just wasn't used much in a, in a very interesting way. Yeah, so it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it felt a bit. Um, that felt a bit. Yeah, a bit of a drag to me, but that, it was just great fun to see like Brad and Leo cruise, cruising around Hollywood. Last thing, I think, I think the, um, I mean, I did very much enjoy the film watching it. I, I understand, I agree with you on the sense where it's maybe being a bit overanalyzed, where it it doesn't require that much. You mm. know, there's not there's not like so much under the surface that people are maybe excavating about it, but. Um, I think it's like certainly a, not within the film itself. If you had no prior knowledge and just no prior knowledge or of anything, right, and just watched the running time of that film, then there's not much depth. There's loads of depth if you talk about the wider baggage of it. But yeah, that it seems like he's getting yeah cultural history is doing a lot of the heavy lifting. If you have a profound response to the film rather than the filmmaking itself. Yeah, yeah. And and I know this, because this all sounds very abstract. I, I don't think, it's not a spoiler to say that the film has a connection with the Manson. Uh, no, no, no. Because that's quite well known. Like you see in the trailer, uh, Charlie Manson is there. But um, yeah, so, uh, uh, but I, you know, aside, uh, like I, I, met, I mean, I actually enjoyed the ending. I thought the ending was like this really cathartic moment from, because the, the film has a very sort of like meandering, you know, you're just kind of, it's like a hangout movie. You're hanging out yeah. with these characters. Um, it was really like, and it was nice to sort of build to this ending that sort of took a left turn. But uh, it was, you know, just just seeing like Brad and Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio play these like, you know, be a bit older, a little bit more. There was a kind of wistfulness to it. Like, you know, there's a certain like gravitas that Brad Pitt has now. He's a little bit older and, uh, and um you know, DiCaprio playing someone who's more of a fading figure and a bit more, a little bit more of the putts of the film in a way, like yeah. he's a bit more, you know, vulnerable. He's like, he's a bit pampered film, sort of film actor. And uh, it was nice. Like all of that was just the character, the characters were so well drawn and well done that it was, uh, it was fun. Maybe a bit less so Margot Robbie's character is a bit less fleshed out, but like, it was fun to sort of hang out with those. I felt characters. like when she, she was great when she was on screen, she just didn't have much. Like I loved the scene where she was watching her her film in the cinema. I thought that was like really nicely done. I thought maybe the best kind of sequence of it. Okay, it's not really a spoiler. The sequence where it just rolls through the Playboy Mansion at that party. I thought that was just yeah, like that super was well done and like kind of um, yeah, just like fun viewing. Whereas his last film, the hateful hateful eight i mean i just felt every minute of that running time whereas this film was like nearly three hours long and i didn't didn't feel like i was you know going through it for as long as that so it certainly ticked along nicely i also didn't think the pacino stuff was good i thought he was just i was just naff i thought i was naff and didn't really serve any purpose. He, he was again just sort of under you it's just sort of not really needed it didn't need to be pacino and that it, it, was, yeah, it didn't need to or it didn't need to happen it, at all that and sequence. it went on yeah. quite and it went on very long that sequence yeah um, yeah it, it was definitely it's like 
I really enjoyed what the film was and what it represented now, where it's kind of like, to be honest, you don't, it's, it does get a bit harder and harder to sort of find like auteur filmmaking now. That's just someone, you know, it just feels like it's just completely what Quentin Tarantino wanted to do mm-hmm. and has his fingerprints all over it. It's like a very distinct vision by someone doing what they want. And, uh, and it was nice just sitting, I, I saw it in Hollywood, which was mm-hmm. a treat. Um, and it, I remember being there with Matt and Jameson and just sort of it, it just sort of like washes over you and you're just like, I'm enjoying just being in the presence of these characters. You're seeing yeah. like, you're seeing Leo try and like go and do this role that's not really, that's out of his comfort zone and he's trying, he's struggling. And it's like, it's fun to watch all that sort of stuff of like, he's going to, his last ditch is to go to, to Italy and do some spaghetti westerns. And like, I like all that sort of, steeped in film history part of the, the film it was definitely fun it was like a fun, really fun viewing um i just I, I don't think i'll probably just won't watch it again you know it kind of it was sort of a one and done viewing of see, i film. do i do want to see it again but may in partly curious i'm curious to see how i respond to it a second time because i definitely had the feeling where i was like i enjoyed watching this but i'm yeah it took me quite a while to digest like how much did i like it and how much was I just enjoying the ride? But is, yeah. there, is there much more here under the surface? I think that's what I wrestled with when I left. I like really enjoyed the ride. But when I think about how much I like it, if I sort of think about the technical aspects that were, or like just the construction of it, it sort of felt, my impressions of it fell away a little bit. But um, yeah, certainly glad I saw it. Yeah, it's a great like mood mood piece and like yeah yeah just the feeling of it is really good like it's it's uh it's in a lot of tarantino's movies but this one felt like it was gentler in a way that was yeah it was just kind of enjoyable to sort of sit back and watch it wasn't like edge of your seat suspense or something. it reminded me a bit of the player i don't know if you've seen that the, the um, tim robbins yeah it just um, not all of it, but obviously films set in Hollywood, but just a lot of those kind of aerial shots and the way the camera kind of pans up and over the studios and looks around the hills and things. It just had that kind of Altman-y vibe, which I thought was quite nice. And the uh, the uh, the controversial Bruce Lee scene, did you enjoy it? Or did you find it silly? Uh, I mean, I, I don't really care about the controversy particularly. Um, yeah, I, di- I didn't... I, th- I sort of like laughed a little bit of that, but I didn't. F- I didn't enjoy that sequence. That was the Kurt Russell bit, and then his wife comes right. out and they have a bit of an argument. So I was just like, wasn't you know like really vibing with that section. So when the the Bruce Lee bit happened, it was just like, okay, um, yeah. I I think that's kind of the jumping off point for where like reality and the plot of the film sort of diver- that kind of lets you know that the film's really diverging from reality, I suppose. Yeah, and it is. Yeah, and it's it's you know I thought it's like playful with it, isn't it? It's kind of like um, yeah. Um, I, like I, a, I guess the controversy comes from what his family feel about it, right? So I don't know how playful it is in the sense that were they told it was going to happen or whatever. I don't I don't have a problem with it, but I, yeah, I, I don't know what the the kind of I don't, I don't know enough about yeah. I don't know enough about Bruce Lee to know because it sort of depicts him as a bit of a blowhard and arrogant and. I don't know enough about him to have an opinion on the real man, really. Yeah, but, but um, it was yeah, it was fun. The movie was uh, the movie was fun. It was yeah. yeah, it was just fresh. It felt it felt kind of refreshing to 
see something that wasn't a comic book film, I guess, for and uh, sure, <laughs> something yeah. that was, you know, just a straight up yeah, like I said, it, it felt like a distinct thing in, in a in a world of a lot of films that start to feel more and more mm. um yeah. Like, well um on the uh on the smaller screen steve i don't know if you've seen this but something I, I will just take the opportunity to champion um and i'm potentially our american listeners may be ahead of me because that they'll have had more episodes of it than we have in the uk but succession are you familiar with this have you seen this uh no i have heard of this oh, it's it's it's, excuse my French, Steve, bloody good. Um, it's written by Jesse Armstrong, who did Peep Show, which was a great sitcom in the UK, and then was a big part of the writing team for The Thick of It, which is fantastic kind of political satire comedy in the UK, which he wrote with Armando Iannucci, who did Alan Partridge and a lot of other kind of classic British things. Um, and The Thick of It span off into Veep, which is another big US hit um but this has just got all the hallmark hallmarks of that like it's it's a drama but it's also very funny in a very sort of dark way and it follows a kind of analog of a rupert murdoch kind of family dynasty who, who run an equivalent to a fox news kind of big media conglomerate and it's just about the the goings-on in the in their world when the patriarch's kind of coming to the end of his career and life and what's going to happen but it's yeah, it's fantastic. It's got a brilliant cast. Um, Brian Cox, the actor, not the cos, you know, <laughs> cosmologist or whatever he is. Um, and then it's got Fuller from Home Alone, the bedwetter, now a sort of 38-year-old man. Yeah, Kieran Yeah, and um, you've got Alan Ruck, who was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and he's been in many other things since. But it's just like a really fun cast. Matthew McFadden big british star this is kind of his big american breakout moment it's, it's excellent i would say it's the best thing i've watched on tv this year um wow that looks great and people have said it i've heard people almost say it's i don't know if it's a loose comparison but game of thronesy um but it's but lots it's of scheming and manipulating and dark right. kind of behind the scenes what i think because i'm quite attuned to that writer's style having seen a few of his other other things um my girlfriend hasn't really so we've been watching it together and for like the first two or three episodes she was like is this a drama or is this a comedy whereas it's kind of it's just what happens right it's like if the scene's funny the scene's funny if it's really dark it's dark it's not yeah sort of one one thing there can be humor in awful moments and there can be awful things happen in funny circumstances so it's kind of it it toes that line really well none of them are particularly likable characters but kind of root for route for just whichever sort of schemes are unfolding as they go but um second season's just come to air in the uk i've not started that yet but it's been better reviewed than the first and i thought the first was excellent so i would certainly recommend that to anyone looking for a new show to binge that's great uh, i uh, i am looking for a new show george so i think will ferrell produces it as well and his his buddy who directed um the big short what's his name adam k adam McKay. Yeah. Adam Kay, he directed the first episode. So it's oh, got like right. a kind of high power, high power sort of, sort of guys behind it as well. Um, maybe I'll bump this up my list then. Um, I watched the first couple of episodes of Chernobyl on the plane and was very impressed with that. Um, <laughs> a, mis- a miserable watch. Yeah, uh, quite grim. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, it's very well done. And watch the rest of that. Yeah, it had a ve- very sort of cream of some of the British actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, all these Brits playing Soviets. 
just the, oh if we want to do it in english let's just put a bunch of brits in there to sort of give it some some air of authenticity or something yeah i, I also and i'm sure i think i probably have i've championed her work on here before but uh, the author svetlana alexievich who wrote the book chernobyl prayer or voices from chernobyl which is a, the source material for lots of what happens in that show and um, probably two-thirds of it is kind of mapped onto some of the narratives she um discovered from talking to people involved at the time so um yeah definitely seek out that book it's the show is very hard hitting the book hits even harder and is is excellently done yeah you know this podcast is highbrow and svetlana's name has come up in <laughs> multiple three, episodes at least three episodes yeah she, she's a she's a friend of the show <laughs> <laughs> if she's listening i'll be very surprised steve <laughs> how old is she uh she might be 70 okay if someone passes this on <laughs> um, if she wants to hear all about my tour with get the guy <laughs> oh, i'm sure she does um <laughs> lovely stuff uh do we have more things we want to talk about today i mean i could bang on i could bang on for god knows how long about the new taylor swift album steve but i don't know if i don't know if that's what our listeners want I mean, I'm I'm guessing. Well, I feel like this is the episode to talk about it, but <laughs> I mean, I haven't listened to it, so that does limit us a little bit. But yeah. I'm guessing by what you're saying, there's a positive review coming up because I'm gonna I'm gonna preface by saying the last album was a bit it it wasn't really it wasn't really up to the dizzy heights of uh, what is it? Um, would you agree with that? I, I would. Um, it was quite a sort of a lackluster. Yeah, it had, it, I think it actually had um, kind of like the album tracks on that, on that reputation album were better than the singles. But I think she just seems to know how to write an earworm for a single that will just garner tons of YouTube plays and just kind of capture everyone's, you know. Oh, she knows an earworm. Exactly. Right. You know, like those sort of cheerleady hooks and the little you know, like call call and response bits that maybe make a song just a little bit sort of infantilized maybe, but they work well for singles when, you know, a market is it's like teenage girls, right? So it sort of hits hits that demographic really well. But on the last album, I thought the kind of, there are a few more like sort of, yeah, nicer sort of album tracks. But this from this new album, Lover, of which I've listened to it maybe three times through now, it's just, she's just a very good songwriter and like, big event pop is just good right it's sort of pop music because it's popular and sort of well received and she just yeah she just writes she writes very good songs um, so this, this is getting the thumbs up I, uh, yeah i would say it's a better album than reputation i it's quite long it's just over an hour but so was the last Vampire Weekend album, Stephen. I'm not going to say that they get more of a pass because they're a kind of cool indie band and she's a pop singer. So um, I, th- and I, I don't think it's full of filler, you know, in the way that some, maybe like a lot of the contemporary hip-hop albums go for just that grab as many Spotify listens as possible. I feel I like she's behind all of the songs in it with earnestness. With Vampire Weekend, Chance and Taylor, we're, we're in the year of the big album. I feel like... Yeah, I feel like big old albums are back again like they are i think my um my feeling is is that 1989 was is probably her standout album for me because that was the first one i sort of listened to and it's a bit more compact it's kind of 40 odd minutes 
This one is a bit baggier and it's a bit more of a grab bag across. There's a bit of country. There's a bit of synth pop. There's a bit of love song. There's a bit of something for everyone, which is also her prerogative for sure. But it's, it's just definitely, it's a fun summer to autumn, you know, album to just, just pop on. And why not? Would it be, is it a better falling in love album or a breakup album? Oh, for, I would say falling in love, Steve. Okay. That's nice. Um, yeah, I feel I feel like pop divides between those two sometimes. It, it's like, it does it's really. My, this is my breakup album, and this is my yeah. Everything. Yeah, I would say I would say it's a fall. Probably, probably the falling in love side of things. Because um, I think it's quite confessional about a relationship she's been in for about three years and seems pretty happy with. So mm. I think there's a lot of that sentiment seeping through. Um, I can I can also talk about obscure indie music, you know, but um, I'm just going to wear my heart on my sleeve and champion that for today. Yeah, no, it's the the George's summer jams. <laughs> it's more that it's just you know, if the Tarantino film's the event film of the summer, I would say that's probably the event album of the summer. Is I mean, it's mad. Her set, you like you like um, you know box office numbers. The, the sales numbers she generates are just ludicrous. I think there's only 20 albums since they've been recording the figures, which is around 1991 for albums that have sold more than a million units in their first week. It's only happened 20 or 22 times and she's got four of them. And I think this album will, will also be one as well. So she's got, you know, a quarter of the albums that have done that. No one else has done it more than twice. And that was back in the kind of everyone buys CDs period. She's doing that in the streaming period. It's insane. She's got a loyal old, loyal old fan base. Taylor. Yeah, she's very good at marketing. Um, I think yeah. of her as the first, the first pop star who sort of coincided with, like she was making her name on the internet at the same time. Like she was being very personal on like Tumblr and all these platforms. Right. Yeah. Because we've had like big internet bands, right? Like Arctic Monkeys and MySpace bands. But yeah, they they weren't um, responding like, to messages and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she sort of came up sort of with this like personal relationship, like a fandom online. Yeah, yeah, that's probably right. And that she's kind of started at the age when fandom kind of takes root in people and then she's kind of grown through it and been present for it also. It's quite like a an interesting journey, I would say. She's been on a journey with the millennials, hasn't she? <laughs> she certainly has. Been through it all. Yeah. Um, I wonder if the millennials are starting to feel old you know at what, what point everyone feels really old really quickly these days as they sort of get to 30 and plus are the millennials sort of feeling like oh we're we've sort of had our time now mm, no i think i don't know is it a trope of millennials to not feel very grown up you know while you're actually an adult you know you still feel that, like a bit of a kid true. and stuff so that's that might true. help it last a bit longer that's true um i feel like it's become just so ill-defined now that i don't know who counts anymore as a people now refer to them as people who are like 20 and i'm like well they can't be millennials as well as me yeah because just the technology's changed so much in that time right i'm supposed to be a millennial so it's like how big is this generation meant to like meant to be yeah Um, yeah well you know we're all in an infantilized world now and god bless it That's my code. That's that's your take. Well, let's end on that note, I think. (laughs) (laughs) 
just hang on that ambiguous statement. Uh, oh, right. it's good. It's good to be back, isn't it? It's great to be back. Um, we got so you know we got so deep there. We got <laughs> into big, big cultural topics. Um, where we got left to go? Well, stay tuned. You'll find out, guys, because we got a, we got a whole bag more of goodie to face them. Um, we're going to go out with a bang this year, and I don't mean with the podcast dying in some terrible explosive way. Let's um, not get dark. <laughs> um all right thanks for coming back thanks for sticking with us um we're seeing more and more people come in more and more people subscribe it's very exciting um we're happy you're here with us uh thank you george as always thank you i'll see you next time cheers guys bye bye